Hello and welcome to the Building Sustainability Podcast with me, Jeffrey Hart. Every fortnight, join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers. Together, we can explore the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Yes, welcome back. This is episode 106 with best-selling author and columnist Sally Coulthard. If you haven't heard episode 105 yet, then definitely go and start there. Um, In this episode, we will be talking much more about biophilia and craft. Um, I think the first episode will really set you up on that. Reminder that there are loads of links in the show notes uh, so you can go over and buy Sally's books. They're all through the Hive shop, which supports local bookstores as well as giving a kickback to this podcast. I think if you can buy secondhand, do that. But I think Hive is the, the next best option if you want to buy new. Also a reminder, check out nautacumcraftschool.com. Uh, for a whole load of craft courses available in 2024. I hope to see you there. That's it. We are heading straight on in to the remainder of the conversation with Sally Coulthard. I'm back at the end. Enjoy the... Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The episode. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. 
That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Coming back to this program, I only caught ten minutes of it this morning. But there is Radio Four program about about why build by boring buildings are bad for us. You know, they, they, they had people on who who were who were called things like um, oh, what was the, what was the job title? Oh, that's it, neuro aestheticists. So they they, they practice neuroaesthetics, which was an amazing crossover between neuroscience and the aesthetics, basically how things looked affected the brain and there's loads of research that these people were doing you know really people who are medically you know trained and but saying you know built different buildings have physiological responses create physiological responses in people and so much of modern architecture creates the wrong response or no response or or poor responses in terms Mm -hmm. of stress and engagement and happiness and all these kind of things and I think that's that's a really interesting and profound area of of, of something to be to be looking at. Um, I, I I wrote a bit about that in Biophilia. You know, the idea that living spaces have a really profound effect on on your well being, um, and not mm-hmm. just kind of like you know what color wallpaper you had or whether you had you know a sparkly kitchen things, but more more to things you know like the temperature of a building or whether it has fresh air flowing through it or what your you know what your views were what what sounds did you hear you know as you were traveling through the building you know were the spaces kind of human sized or you know i i love all that idea i love the uh, sort of humanization of the of the building the, the built environment and the idea that we should be thinking you know about all those kind of different things you know our relationship with water or or you know spaces or rhythms to do with you know night and day and light and dark and surprise and then you know different emotions and stuff like that I, I, yeah it's um i think there's a lot of work to be done on that yeah well, were they these um neuroscientists talking about sort of biophilia or were they talking more yeah i think the focus of the emphasis i mean the emphasis of the program on the surface of it was was why boring buildings they were basically saying that you know most modern kind of urban buildings are tall bland boxes made of glass and 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 so the emphasis was that he was trying to say that more buildings should be more fun and more engaging and that was the kind of that was where mm-hmm. his starting point was but actually the things that he was talking about and the things that, that the experts he had on were talking about were things like 
you know, do spaces make you feel well? Do they make you feel stressed? Do they, do they make you feel engaged with your, you know, can you, can you engage with the outside? You know, is your, are your stress rates getting worse and all that kind of stuff? And I think that, you know, that's essentially biophilia. That's, that's, that's the core of kind of biophilic yes. design. Um, uh, which I think I get the impression that more pe- more and more people, it's becoming more commonplace, even if people aren't talking, using the word biophilia, um, the idea that, mm-hmm. you know, spaces should be somewhere that make us feel, feel, um, you know, well. Yeah. I, and so many spaces don't, you know, I think about, you know, I think about hospitals that I've stayed in or, you know, doctor's waiting rooms or schools. I mean, you know, most of my schools that I ever went to when I, I went to a big state school and, you know, that was just a kind of concrete box and mm-hmm. not somewhere that helps with concentration or making, making you feel calm and, uh, and excited about learning or all those kinds of things. So there's some really fascinating research. I was, um, I was reading about biophilia and children, especially, and, and about how profound, uh, the effects of buildings on children are and also in return how play in nature is so important for children and the types mm-hmm. of play that kids do in nature is completely different than the kind the, the kind of play that a lot of kids seem to do these days which is very directed it's very you know material based so you play with toys get you know technology that kind of stuff and the, you know there's a research there was the research was basically saying that you know kids who play in nature and take take more risks and they become they a lot of the play is less gendered because there isn't there aren't male and female objects in the natural environment you know they people learn to be more eco eco conscious adults if they spent a lot of time as children playing in nature and you know the play is often a bit more creative and free form and and you know you probably had the same childhood as me which was was kind of left to left to your own devices really and yeah i spent a lot of time outside just kind of messing messing about and i'm really glad i did um and i worry about kids these generations you know who are endlessly entertained and and one way that's great because they're obviously in you know i've got three three girls and of different ages and they're so switched on and they're so advanced i think in terms of maturity than we probably were but they don't really experience boredom or have that time to kind of make make stuff up as they go along that we probably did, um, which I find, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the outcome of that is. Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, do, you, do you sort of push them outside to, to get some of that, that sort of play space, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, kids are brilliant, aren't they? Because whatever you try and do, they basically do it their own way anyway so <laughs> my three my three girls are very very are very different and my eldest who's now just gone to university I, I think never really she likes the aesthetics of nature and being in nature but she's not really interested in being outdoorsy whereas the other two are a, a bit more outdoorsy but I do wonder if sometimes like um it's a, it's maybe an age thing as well. When they were really little, they were they were quite outdoorsy and spent a lot of time outside. But they're going through that stage at the moment where a lot of time is spent indoors. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I think that I think they'll appreciate it when they're not here. You mm-hmm. know, when they're living in some London flat, staring out into a <laughs> onto a grey pavement, they'll miss it. That's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> With with biophilia, I mean, do you do you remember how 
you kind of were were introduced to it? I think I must have. Uh, I think when I actually was doing research really early on for this book, I wrote about kind of organic living and natural materials and stuff. I think I must have come across the term then, mm-hmm. um, and then probably kind of. Uh, I, I must. I mean, I read a lot, and I re- and and I think I must have kind of come across the term some at some point in my research but it was always used as a quite a sort of um kind of esoteric um very sort of architecturally based term it didn't seem to have much relevance for you know the the average person living in a in a semi or whatever and so at the time the whole idea for the book was my in my approach was a to make it to make it a really everyday idea and to show how applicable it was to every aspect of your working life or daily life, whether it is, you know, using tech before you go to bed or what temperature you had your bedroom, all those kind of things. But also to kind of pull together as much of, of, of the kind of decent research that was around to show that it wasn't just a kind of another, you know, feng shui or feng shui or whatever. And not that I'm, I don't really know anything about feng shui, but, but, and I actually do think there's something about, you know, there's something to the idea that a space needs to have flow. And and, mm-hmm. and, and I definitely agree with that. But but the actual kind of, the, the rational scientific explanation for me appeals because then it could make me say, right, this is actually something that we can, we can test and, and replicate. And therefore I don't, I'm not going to have to get through the barrier of convincing people that this is a good idea because mm-hmm. the science says it, it, science says it is. So it's like having an extra layer of kind of trustability to it. Yes, um, and it can appeal to a much broader, broader spectrum of people, can't it? Like exactly. The, the feng shui thing is exactly. probably very much a, an alternative mindset. Exactly. And and I don't think it helps that people kind of set themselves in one camp or the other, because actually there's there's a benefit to kind of to, to picking and choosing lots of different elements of kind of building ideas. But 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 biophilia, and there's lots of different research that wasn't necessarily started out as biophilic research as such. So ideas about, you know, I mean, there's been loads of kind of neurological studies about color and about the effect of color on the brain or the effect of natural views on the brain or, you know, research has been done by hospitals about the healing effect of looking out of the window onto greenery and, and things. And we've known that for, I mean, we've known that since medieval times that, you know, this is why monasteries and, and medieval hospitals were built around garden physic gardens in the middle you know because the idea that looking upon nature and being close to it would be part of the healing process and we now know that mm-hmm. that's actually based in science uh so to answer your question the biophilia thing kind of came out of an interest to, uh, to do with trying to make um a kind of unrelatable idea something that that we could use in our homes and it's really about, it was really aimed at the domestic market. It wasn't designed for kind of architects building big office spaces. It was designed for you and me, you know, in our, in our houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really luckily <laughs> it came out about two weeks into COVID when everyone was stuck in their house, <laughs> when everyone was stuck in their houses. And so it really hit a, I think it was the first time that people really ever spent any concentrated amount of time in their houses thinking, does this space actually, is this helping or hindering, you know, how I'm feeling right now? And so there was quite a lot of interest on the back of that. I mean, it was, I wouldn't have wished those circumstances on anybody, but it was, it was strangely apt for the book that it came Mm -hmm. out at that time. Um, 
And obviously there's, there's been a huge kind of interest in, you know, the last decade or so about indoor plants and, and people, you know, making a big deal about sort of having, having lots of indoor plants and especially kind of apartment living and, and trying to make it as kind of like an urban jungle and, and those kind of things. So I was trying to kind of pull all those, tease all those elements together and, and see if I could come up with a kind of cohesive idea. So here's the thing that that's, I've been discussing recently. Uh, I've seen a lot of plastic plants around and the instant reaction is, oh, a plastic plant uh but then i've sort of yeah the more i've learned about biophilia it's like well actually i think that's probably giving you quite a uh like a good boost but it feels very bad to be you know singing the praises of a plastic plant i can hear why you're the noises you're making that yeah do you know i've gone around and i've gone around in circles so 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 I shall confess, I do have fake flowers in my house. I am guilty uh, uh, because I like the kind of decorative look of them. Mm-hmm. But actually, I don't think they have a biophilic effect in the same way that I write a bit about this in Biophilia that do, do fake materials have the same effect? So like, you know, does laminate, does wood laminate have the same effect as 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 as, as real timber and that kind of stuff? And I think... I think the probably the answer is probably no. That that I think we are such sophisticated sensing humans, and our and our ability mm. to discern between fake and and fakery and reality is so good and so finely honed that I don't think we have the same reaction to fake plants that we do to real plants because I think there's mm. something much more sophisticated than just than just vision or just you know I think you know things on on a really micro level like color perception or scent or you know the fact that you know fake fake things are often too perfect right and I think mm-hmm. our brains can sense that and the imperfection is a part, imperfection within general kind of ideas of perfection are, are, are the essence of kind of nature. And that we, we, we can spot a fake from a mile off because often it's too perfect and doesn't mm-hmm. quite feel right. So that's a very long winded way of saying, I don't think they're the same. I don't think, but I understand why people do it. Um, and also sometimes yeah. just, you know, having real plants. Looking after real plants is a commitment, and sometimes people kind of don't have that time. Um, so I'm not going to be yes. judgy about fake, fake <laughs> plants. There are worse things you can. There are worse things you can buy. <laughs> yeah, I, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I know you know if you have a a, a photo of a landscape, you know it's supposed to it's supposed to be have a good biophilic response, and then you know, sort mm. of patterns, using patterns around the house. You know, a pattern isn't a, a a flawed and, you know, a complex natural thing. It's a representation. And that is also having a good, a good biophilic response. So sort of seems like it's, it's going to yeah. do something, but as you say, not probably not the full, the full plant. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head, really, that, you know, you, what you're talking about is probably the difference between the benefit of looking at a picture of the Alps and also actually being in the Alps and smelling the air <laughs> yes. and being, you know, and the, magnific- the magnificence of it all. And they're not really comparable, but but if you can only have the former, then 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 have the former because at least it's better than nothing. Um, yeah. And you've got to be so realistic about, you know, I, I write a lot about um, 
ideal scenarios, whether it's biophilia or, you know, organic materials or, you know, pesticide. I talk about, I write a lot about farming and small holding and that kind of thing. And, and there's so, often quite a big difference between what the ideal scenario is and, and what people can actually afford or what they have mm-hmm. access to. And I'm, I'm really aware of the fact that I'm writing from the middle of the North Yorkshire countryside, you know, with lots of nice fresh air and green spaces and stuff. And, and I'm not having to be stuck in, you know, a tiny flat in the middle of a really busy city and, and things. So um, I think you've got, sort of, you know, that's just something to be kind of mindful of. Absolutely. If you had to pick a favourite way of introducing biophilia into a, a space, what would you go for? Oh. Oh, no, you've put me on the spot. <laughs> um, that's actually, that sounds a bit like a proper interview such, question, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Oh, my God. <laughs> you, well, the, the thing that's kind of keep that's, that's for the forefront of my mind is that most buildings are too hot. I, I, and, and so for me, fresh air, mm-hmm. and that encompasses everything from, you know, clean air through to breezes, through to natural light, through to having, you know, a sense of kind of movement of air across your skin and all those kind of things. You know, so many, I can't stand being in a hermetically sealed building. It actually makes me feel physically sick. And so many buildings are so hot as well. And, and you know, if you're going to stay in a hotel, often the rooms are so hot at night time. And I don't, I, my body just doesn't work like that. I need to be, I need to be quite cold most of the time or at least cool. Um, and I think we keep a lot of our spaces way overheated and ecologically that can't be a good thing either but i just think for our Mm -hmm. immune systems and just for our general health i think we i think we kind of and then you and then it makes you not appreciate i talk about something called anesthesia in the in in biophilia which is this inherent pleasure that humans get from contrast in temperature so you know it's like they being really 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 hot and then the deliciousness of jumping into an ice cold pool you know that pool wouldn't be as good to do to jump in if it was just kind of averagely warm it was a kind of tepid day and Mm -hmm. and so i there's there's something about you know if you if you if you have a building at a generally cooler temperature then you can really appreciate things like open fires or spots of heat and that kind of and that kind of stuff and i think we you know that's for me the kind of pleasure of 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 a living space of of those that kind of play with those temperatures and light and you know no, the kind of uniformity sorry and um, th- that's a long way sort of so yes the 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 short answer is is rooms are too buildings are too hot cool down open a window <laughs> <laughs> brilliant um <laughs> i wanted to sort of pull you back a little bit um and talk to you about craft um we sort of started to get into it a little bit when we were talking about buildings and sort of the the way that buildings don't really have the the crafted uh elements anymore was that was that what brought you Mm -hmm. into writing crafted so crafted i really enjoyed writing and it's um it must be it must be quite old now it must be maybe six or seven years old and I, the the kind of impetus to write it was the fact that I do a lot of kind of archaeological writing about the you know the first time we did this and the first time we did that and you know the first time we made beer or grew wheat or all those kind of things and lots of different things have have been found um, in archaeological sites that suggest like the earliest time we ever did weaving or the other time the earliest time we ever kind of made pots and and that kind of and and so 
I'm, I, I was really curious about the, the history, the really long history of, of lots of different crafts. And what really struck me when I was writing the book was actually that so many crafts are so ancient. I mean, truly, truly tens of thousands of years old. And that, and that even people, there's even now a thought, um, amongst archaeologists that, that crafts were being performed by not just uh, Homo sapiens, but Neanderthals as well, and that that the, the kind of you know the ability to see a material and make something out of it, and and think efficiently about the material use, and 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 have an end goal in sight, and all those kind of things when you're making craft could be something that's inherently kind of part of who we are, and the mm-hmm. idea that you kind of you know people naturally experiment materials, and you know basket weaving turned into into weaving wool or hemp or all that kind of, you know, all these kind of crafts all have loads of crossover. So yeah, that was the idea. So, so the crafted book was really a kind of a, an attempt for me to, to put all those kind of crafts in some kind of chronological order and also, but also try and group crafts together like metalworking and textiles and paper and, and woodworking and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I just, I found it really, really, I found it really, really interesting. Um, and, and, you know, that, that there isn't just kind of one center of craft in the world, you know, crafts happened all over the place and, and sprang up at all lots of different times and then disappeared. And then, you know, and sometimes there was interchanged between communities and craft spread that way. And, you know, there's a, there's, we basically have a huge history of making things, which is really interesting. I suppose that probably, um, you mentioned your, your new book that probably bleeds quite nicely into into that so depth so definitely um and i talk about things like you know evidence for the first kind of timber framed buildings or you know the beginning of blacksmithing or when we started you know i mean we we we, we split our ages up historically into what materials people were working with you know so like iron age bronze age all that kind of thing you know that that still applies even today and I, and I find that really interesting and how the introduction of a new material often changed a culture entirely or meant that one culture managed to dominate another culture and would spread all over the world. And, and, you know, and so, so the ability to craft stuff was often massively life changing. So, so as soon as people, for instance, worked out how to make iron, that was a complete game changer because suddenly you, you didn't just make weapons with it. You could make tools with it and, and then you could change your farm landscape and, and how much you could farm change. So you started to make more money and with money comes power and then power means you can subjugate more people. And, you know, and so craft, craft is often at the heart of lots of kind of historical, big, big historical events. Um, I wrote a book about, about how sheep, uh, changed history so it's, i think it's called a, a short history of the world according to sheep and and that a lot of that was about how when people mastered the art of wool and shearing and textiles it was it was a complete game changer so um things like the, the you know the, the thing that the vikings wouldn't have been able to conquer huge swathes of the world without the fact without the fact that they had such sophisticated uh, a such sophisticated wool and weaving industry that then wow. they made these massive sails with that allowed them to take these huge boats and, and navigate, I mean, you know, right the way across to, to Canada when everyone else was kind of piddling around in, you know, little kind of canoes or whatever, you know, coracles or whatever. And so craft is, a, you know, craft, cr- the the ability to make stuff isn't just kind of fun. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's it's the It's the difference between whether your culture 
is a winner or a loser, um, historically speaking, anyway. So that was really interesting. And yeah, I kind of worry the fact that craft has been, the term craft has been so diluted um, with in modern times and that, you know, sticking bits of paper onto other bits of paper to create kind of nice collages or, you know, making knitted toilet roll holders, as I say, you know, for me is not craft. <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of messy. And, and, and that sounds like I'm being really picky, but you know, it's not, it's, that's just kind of playing. It's playing with materials. But for me, craft is lich is, is something much more refined than that and much more intelligent is a guiding intelligence underneath it all and skill that's passed on and, you know, specialized tools and all those kind of stuff. And it's something that we should really, really cherish. And I don't think we, I don't think we do. Um, mm. I don't think m- many people really understand how important it is. Um, you know, being, 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 an amazing stonemason should be a, should be as respected as being, you know, a heart surgeon. I, I genuinely, you know, I genuinely think that craft craft needs the, that kind of recognition of skill and 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 you know you don't. It takes a lifetime to become a really amazing woodcarver or a really amazing you know jewelry maker, and yet we don't seem to kind of give people that kind of kudos. That's really fascinating um, to hear. I mean, I've never really sat and thought while I'm crafting about the the sort of how far back the links of that craft go. Um, And certainly I'd never thought about basket weaving informing fabric weaving. That's a Mm. a fascinating evolution that has just completely blown my mind a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, so to to take that point, so that so so archaeologists find evidence. So, as soon as you can knot something right, you 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 can make a net, and as soon as you can make a net, then you're starting to under you're starting to work with threads in three D or fibers in three D, and and so what starts off as maybe like using um, bits of reeds or strips of bark and things to make something useful like a net uh, or a sieve. You know, you can get, then you start to create the tighter weaves and then you start thinking, well, maybe I need something finer, finer material. And then, you know, then you start playing around with threads and, and, and then you start to get onto animal fibers and things. And it's just, you know, they're all, it's the same skills applied to different materials to get completely different, um, to give, get completely different results, which is, which is fascinating. And then, you know, you get the specialists heading off in their, their individual area, uh, and, yeah. unique crafts are, are born that's i i've i feel wholly connected <laughs> <laughs> yeah well know that you know the idea that crafts can come and go as well you know a craft is often is only often there because it fits a purpose or you know there's a need for it and as soon as there's, there's not need for it anymore it's quite they're quite quickly lost i've done quite a lot of work with kind of endangered crafts and and so many crafts now you know people just don't do because we don't need them and and there's a big mm-hmm. argument about whether you should try and keep those going or not, or whether it's just a natural kind of part of the evolution of craft, um, and whether yeah. you should bother, but you know whether you should bother trying to kind of teach people archaic craft techniques. And where do you stand on that? I think uh, his- history. We learn a lot from history, and that often things come round in cycles. And so often lost, we're, we're often trying to reinvent the wheel a lot of the time. And actually it's more useful to have some kind of repository of knowledge, even if it's just written down and recorded. It doesn't necessarily mean 
everyone has to be practicing that craft, but it would be good to know how to do it should we have to call on it again. And I think that's mm-hmm. true with lots of things, you know, like plant knowledge or, you know, we've, we've lost more knowledge than I think we've probably gained over the years. And, and, and so, uh, especially kind of old, build it te- old building techniques and things now, you know, I think in the 1970s, people would have probably thought, what's the point of learning how to lime plaster or how to, you know, be able to to frame a to frame a timber framed house and now everybody wants to know how to do those things because they're part and mm-hmm. parcel of a building tradition that's a new one which is really exciting um so I, yeah what do you think uh, as you said there's a sort of in the 70s no one thought we should keep lime plastering alive and then you know it was just kept alive in a few little pockets and now we're sort of digging into mm. those pockets and it's it's being used more widely um certainly the same with uh clay building sort of cob and and you know clay plasters mm. now the 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 health benefits of a clay plastered house is is you know incredible and we that was a material mm. that was very much sort of shunned and and thought of as old-fashioned or you know peasant mm. technology or mud hut kind of analogies mm. um mm. so to have learning things from a book is very different to learning things from a person who you know can can say oh not quite like that or you know the nuances that yeah that don't come across yeah yeah so i do think it's it's very important to sort of keep these i i i, I agree and and, and funny enough there was a, a thing i was reading about the other day so uh I was writing about how when um, in the in the sort of 1600s and seven, early 1700s, there was a big hand knitting culture in in Britain, and and it was a way that um, people people could make extra money between farming jobs, and it was often the women and the children who did it, but also men as well. And people knitted on their way to work and everything, and and they'd use these things called knitting sheaths, which are like I don't know if you've seen them. They look like a they're just like a block of wood, often kind of beautifully carved, but you sort of took it under your arm and then you'd shove a knitting needle in the end of it. And it meant you could kind of hold it whilst you were knitting. Uh, but people talked about being able to, in the, in the, historically in the text, people talked about being able to do one-handed knitting because you were so busy, you could be literally doing something else or knitting with one hand. But no one knew how to do it because everyone now knits with two hands, right? And And so... Uh, sort of a group of knitters got together and they they were kind of practicing and working out and 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 it took them ages to kind of work out what the technique was and they don't even know if they've now got it right but this is something that people across the board used to be able to do and was you Mm -hmm. know children could do but people kind of just didn't know how to do it anymore and and it's not a particularly useful technique but it's historically fascinating because, you know, if you ever do anything like a historical drama or I'm always interested about what people are doing in the background in historical dramas and, you know, like, oh, are they doing the, is their blacksmithing, you know, forge actually accurate <laughs> or all that, you know, you get, get quite nerdy about it. But um, yeah, for lots of kind of historical, if you're interested in history, I think kind of getting those details right is probably important, which is why it's probably important to, to keep craft crafts alive, even the old ones. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about sort of old crafts. Um, your book talks uh, about the newer crafts. Um, and I, was, well, I was sort of struggling. I was thinking, what on earth is a new craft? And yeah, I mean, when when do new crafts that you would consider not like the sticking bits of plastic on or other bits of plastic? When are they? What sort of era are they appearing? 
I'm trying to think what, 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 I mean, it's quite a long time ago since I read, I, I wrote <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm asking you, this is old, old no, no, it's fine. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, no, it's probably, I mean, there's probably new tools and things that allow different processes to happen or, you know, um, c- crafts that were technique probably hand driven most of the time, you know, the advent of, of electricity probably changed fundamentally how people did those kind of things. Um, or you get, you know, you get old crafts, but done in new ways, like, I don't know, you know, stained glass making has changed or the way that people apply new design ideas to old crafts and, and, and that kind of thing. But I can't, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I struggle with the idea of kind of plastic crafting and things because I sort of, but then that's just my, that's my own uh, prejudices about plastic as a material and, and the fact that there, is, there isn't much room for human and a human imprint on something that's mm-hmm. formed out of plastic. It doesn't kind of move in the same way as natural materials. And But that's, you know, I'm sure someone could show me something made of plastic that they made and it would, it would, it would blow my mind. So, you know, I'm prepared to kind of have my mind changed about that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think people are thinking of new things, new ways of doing things all the time. That's, you know, we're, we're constantly inventing new, new techniques and, and new ways of doing things. Um, yeah, you don't get you don't you don't get that many new crafts. Maybe I don't think um, developing these days. I think you sometimes get like breakaway ideas, like where craft joins another discipline. So craft and activism, say for instance. So yeah, the idea that you can do something political with a craft. So like you know you get like guerrilla gardening or you know um, knitting, knit, you know crochet bombing and and stuff like that. What you're saying a kind of political statement, which I think is brilliant. Um, or or linking there's quite a lot of work with craft and uh, memory and and alzheimer's and working with old people which is a really interesting avenue that people are exploring and and the ability of craft to kind of jog people's memories um so yeah i like i like the crossover where 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 interest where it's mixed with the sort of interesting other topics one thing that uh sort of modern craft i think is really good for is community um and Mm. i sort of get the impression that probably you know uh blacksmithing back back sort of when it was in its its heyday um was didn't have that community it was just sort of a you know it was quite functional and now we've got this new Mm. you know people gather together at blacksmithing conventions or they come together and it's it's actually sort of created this whole um, really positive thing for for people's mental health and and, and well being. I, I totally I totally agree with you, and that blacksmithing in the past would have been almost a career that you would have had to compete with somebody else because you know you can only have one blacksmith in a village um, kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. But now that you know people feel that there's some it's a shared connection and people are happy to share techniques and ideas, possibly because there isn't that kind of. Uh, competition for livelihood maybe or just that the, you know the world's a the world's a different a, a different place i actually don't know if there was a community of blacksmiths before i don't there, there must have there might have been a guild in medieval times i'm not I, i'm not sure but yeah i get you get the impression that you know often crafts are in the past were quite jealously guarded because they're what differentiated you from 
Mr. Not Mr. Ordinary. Mm -hmm. And that if you could do this really amazing craft, then that, 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 that was a status symbol, but it was also potential of earning more money. So you would guard it with your life and you wouldn't kind of share secrets. You'd only pass them down to say a male relative or, Mm -hmm. you know, your own apprenticeship. So now that kind of imperative is gone, then things can be a bit more shared, I suppose. I love the idea of all blacksmiths getting, burly blacksmiths getting together and having a a nice shared community. That's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking some ale from flagons. <laughs> exactly. Clinking flagons, that's it. Tweaking their beards. <laughs> um, one thing I'm interested in uh, to do with craft is the sort of link to sustainability. I find... Um, so the the last podcast with with uh, Dave Cockcroft and he was talking about you know linking you back to nature. Uh, he's a spoon carver and he you know you mm. learn the trees, you learn appreciation for nature. You kind of you want to look after that thing. Ah, uh, and I sort of in my head I think all craft must equal sustainability because I'm mostly woodwork based. Um, do you think mm. that rings true throughout other crafts? I think generally yes, and I've and I've written a bit about craft and sustainability before. That in it, good craft is about a understanding materials and b not wasting them, and so those two kind of principles. Unless unless you've got unless money is no object and you can literally rip through materials like it doesn't matter, and I don't know many craft people that are like that. And usually, you know, if they if they if they're crafting for a livelihood, they're really careful about what they about what they do. So, but you know, so those kind of two practical uh, reasons really inform craft work to be sustainable. But there's also like a there's a kind of uh, artistic pleasure as well I think in craft of being really judicious with materials and and you know if you can make a beautiful bowl from literally the smallest you know from the smallest block of wood you can find that's that's an amazing mental process as well that's your creativity making something you know you're making the best of something with the least amount of materials and so there's a kind of that's where your skill and your flair is shown as well um so craft is, I think, you know, craft and sustainability are are very comfortable bedfellows, and and most crafters understand the importance of being, of being careful with materials and understanding the properties of inher- inherent properties of different materials. Um, so you know, you you pick and choose very carefully. It's just a kind of it's a level of kind of connoisseurship about materials that you just don't get when in mass mass production. Um, or that, at least that's how I, that's how I see it. So I, um, I was very pleased to see that lime plastering and thatch uh, were in your your crafted book, um, but I'd never really mm. considered them craft. Uh, to me, they're building. Mm. And I wondered where is there a line? Is it a, a, a yeah? Where does one meet the other? We'll be back after a quick break. If you're looking for all things BMX racing, you've found the right podcast. Here at Lane 8 BMX Podcast, I'll speak to the local racer, the national racer, and even the Olympic level racer. I'm talking kids to the weekend warriors and much more. So get comfortable, turn up the volume, and remember to snap on green. 
So it it all comes back to what your definition of craft is. Mm. So if some, you know, what what is what is craft? And for me, craft is about using materials, usually natural materials, to produce an end product that is its primary purpose is useful, is utility, not artist an artistic statement. But it can be beautiful if you want it to be, and that there is often a deep level of of skill and gained knowledge to be able to do that thing someone couldn't just you couldn't just give someone off the street a a, a big bale of hay and say or straw and say right fetch me that roof please it just you you couldn't do it because you you, so there's a there's a set of skills that comes with that craft and so for me that's kind of craft it's it's the skills plus the materials plus the knowledge you know uh, plus the the practical outcome, but you know done with done with finesse, and so thatching is absolutely up there for me, and most building crafts are because not anyone can do them. They take loads of time to learn, and when people are really good at them, they are really good at them. You know, I could watch someone lime plaster for hours on end, and I've done lime plastering. And I'm terrible at it. And when people are good at it, it's such a joy to watch. And the end product is such a joy to touch. And, you know, same with thatching. You see beautiful bits of thatch work. And you just think, oh, you know, that's, that's artistry. So, so yes, the, answer, the short answer is yes, lots of building trades are crafts craft as well. Um, because not, not any old person could do them. Um, and then, um, so you mentioned that uh, you're, so you've got, a new book coming out soon. Uh, remind me of the title. It's a, <laughs> thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> it's a brief history of the countryside in a hundred objects. So, so history of the world in a hundred objects uh, obviously came out uh, a while ago, and was brilliant. And the idea that that, that objects can tell a story is is a really powerful idea, and especially for someone like me who likes you know, my way into things is often objects. It's kind of touchy things. And then, and then from there you can kind of talk about ideas. Right. And, um, but it struck me that a lot of the things that were in the original book, history of the world, um, in a hundred objects were about urban life. They're about, you know, great rulers, great civilizations, urban life, all these, you know, big moments in history. And I'm not really massively interested in big moments in history. I'm interested in normal people and the countryside and everyday life and and also for pretty much until only about 200 years ago we were predominantly country dwellers you know we didn't live in cities we lived in we lived off the land and so our history is the history of the countryside that's who we are as people and and so I really wanted to kind of delve into that and and I didn't really know what my objects were going to be before I set off with the book and I just kind of followed my nose and some of them are kind of, you know, extraordinary. And they talk about, you know, they reveal the relationship that we had with wildlife and farm animals and when we started, you know, farming and how we built our buildings and how we solved problems. And I'm full of admiration for our ancestors, how they solved all these problems without having cars, power, you know, electric power, running water. You know, I mean, it's it's true heroism. But at the same time, you know... Yeah, there's a lot of kind of warfare and disease and people being not very nice to each other in the book as well. But that's 
I kind of like that. I kind of like those bits too because the kind of the gruesome bits are always the interesting, <laughs> the interesting bits too. When you when you kind of come to country, so you know, there's lots of hangings and you know, plague and you know, terrible diseases and things. So it's um yeah, it's a real romp through through history really, um, and so it's been fascinating to write. Nice. Is um? Can you tell us just one one item? I always dread this question. So I was like. So just off the top of my head, um, one of the items that's, uh, it must have been, it's about sort of roughly about 1700s, is a glass bottle, bottle of medicine. And the, the, the title on it is Lumbricus. And that means earthworm. Uh, and so the whole, that whole object speaks of a time when a, earthworms were viewed as a medicine, that people used earthworms as a medicine to, for lots of different things, but partly because people would watch what, what happened to earthworms when they, for instance, were split in two when you were, you know, when you were gardening. And they were fascinated by the fact that, that, that earthworms seemed to survive that process. And so earthworm medicine was used for lots of things to do with wounds that people had, you know, where you know, we wanted some kind of healing so that was one in- bit that was interesting about the object. But then, when you did more research, when I did more research into what how people viewed soil and earthworms and the role that earthworms played in soil, it revealed a whole kind of different attitude towards soil health that people had, where almost everything was a pest. So earthworms should be destroyed, moles should be destroyed, insects should be, you know, everything was something that should be killed. And so there are lots of kind of agricultural and farmers treaties from around that time that basically say, you know, you have to go out and you have to find as many earthworms as you can and kill them and scald them and pour lime over them and all this kind of thing. Because what you want is an, is, 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 is animal free soil or creature free soil. And now, what we know now is that obviously, I mean, I've written a book about earthworms, is that they're the, you know, they're underground heroes. They basically do all the important work of soil health. And so that object of this kind of funny earthworm medicine bottle is not, doesn't just speak of kind of odd attitudes towards health and healing, but also our entire view of how we, how we viewed the soil and what we thought was good, healthy soil and how that's changed over time. So that's just, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of one example. But um, yeah, there are lots of kind of curious bits of, bits of kind of objects and, oh, another good one is, um, uh, is, is a, is a mummified cat or a dried cat. I'm fascinated by superstitions. Uh, And, and so the practice of, in you, and you'll be interested in this because it's timber-framed houses. In a lot of timber-framed houses, sort of pre-1800s, you often find a lot of objects, builders in particular, put and hide in, in buildings mm-hmm. for ritual purposes, for, to, for so anti-superstitions. So things like, you know, you find cats, mice, sometimes eggs, but, um, and also witches' marks and things like that. You know, the, the domestic home was somewhere that had to be protected constantly from from potentially kind of harmful forces and so you know home building wasn't just about making a home and making somewhere that was protected from the elements but it was also somewhere that had to kind of spiritually protect you as well and so one of the things that people did was to to basically bury cats in in the wall or in in boundaries <laughs> so you often find them under, under thresholds or... or near windows well it, that's a really good question so so mostly no most of them seem to have been interred after they were dead 
thank the Lord. Uh, but you do find occasionally, there's a brilliant example of um, uh, at a, a museum in London um, in an old, um, one of one of the, it was an old trade hall or something that got, was being renovated. They found a kind of one of these, burials or whatever but it was it was behind a fireplace and that they'd put a bottle some other items and a hen and then bricked them all in and the hen had gone on to lay a couple of eggs while it was waiting its kind of dreadful fate and then keeled <laughs> over obviously but um so yes yeah, so occasionally they were they were live things but most of the time they were I mean I can't imagine it's probably that easy to inter a, a live cat because it probably put no. up a bit of a fight but <laughs> yeah but just you know and so you find them stuffed up chimneys and and lots of different places and, and so I love that kind of um I mean that's tapping into iron age you know ideas about um uh foundation sacrifices and you know and and when you built a building you had to kind of thank the deities and make sure mm-hmm. it was going to be protected and all that kind of, you know and we're still doing that in the 1800s and you just think ah that's 2000 years later we're still doing you know they're still doing the same things and <laughs> human culture doesn't change that much it seems yes yes the, while it's you know surface level we're uh, we're racing away but actually <laughs> we're all rooted in the same <laughs> yeah same i weirdness. bet you've got a dead cat hidden somewhere in your house well, it <laughs> wouldn't be a Haven't project we all? for that dead cat <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> All right, Sally, thank you so much. Um, brilliant to end on some uh, dead cat chat. So a huge thanks to Sally for sparing uh, all that time to talk with us. I had such a good time listening to the way that she described a lot of the things I feel about building and about craft and sustainability and all the intermeshing of them. But I just, I don't have the words of an author. Um, so it was really lovely to to hear those words spoken out loud by her because they really were so in tune with uh, with my thinking. So do go and check out Sally's books. There are links in the descriptions. A reminder that Hive will give a little kickback to me and also give a kickback to your local independent bookstore. So I think they are the best option for new books. Obviously, try and buy secondhand if possible. In the show notes, there are links to Lee John Phillips's shed project, uh, the Carpenter Oak Timber Frame Grand Designs. Thomas Heatherwick, why boring buildings are bad for us. Uh, there's a link to that gargoyle um, on the BBC website. Link to History of the World in 100 Objects, that book. That's not Sally's one. That's the one that she's sort of playing off. Yeah, as always, a whole load of stuff to get into if you've enjoyed this podcast if this was your first episode or your second hopefully then do subscribe to make sure not to miss any future episodes and do look back through the hundred or so other podcasts and if you would like to hear more about biophilic design there is a great episode number 47 with bill browning and katie ryan 
uh, when they talk through the biophilic design patterns. Really good one if that is a new topic for you. If you get a second, please do share this episode on whatever social media you're on. That really helps lots more people hear it. If you want to support the podcast financially, then head to patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. You get loads more uh, bonus audio there. Um, I think that's that's it for me. Um, I've been slightly croaky voiced, just incredibly entertained by Sally. I hope that you're all well and until next time, bye-bye. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.